Hi guys, welcome back to the What About podcast. If you've been following us over the past year, you know that we've been looking at the culture at Christchurch and we've just finished a mini series looking at 3D modern living. We're looking at depression, discipleship and doubt. And now we're moving on to a new series, getting to grips with scripture and all different things to do with the Bible and God's word. I'm really blessed to be joined this week by Andy McCulloch and we're going to be looking at the topic of reading the Bible in different cultural contexts. Andy has a real heart for mission and will be sharing a bit about his journey which has led his family to move out on cross-cultural mission and then brought him back to the UK to Reading where they're now based. Welcome Andy. Hey how you doing? Yeah good thanks yeah. You were just telling me about how Hailsham was gridlocked at half past five this morning. Yeah, no, we got tanker arrived, fuel problems obviously at the moment, and uh, then suddenly everyone descended on the uh, on the BP five thirty this morning. So that was quite fun. I live in the centre of town, so everything was pretty noisy. Um, you thought everyone was going to the early morning prayer meeting, but they weren't. No, no. Sadly, we only had a, a normal number, but yeah, one day, <laughs> one day we pray that the whole of Helsham will descend um, to uh, to pray for for the town. Yeah, amazing. Great to have you and to chat with you more about this topic. Obviously, I know that you're involved all over the world with with missional work and you have a real heart specifically for the Islamic world and and that's where you've been involved recently. Do you want to just sort of open by just sharing a bit about your testimony, your journey? What, you know, what did God do in your heart that brought this to you and and you guys moving out? Yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely. We're quite a cross-cultural family. So when we talk about like culture and stuff, that's part of our world i think i was born and grew up in cyprus came to the uk in my late teens my wife is from south africa we met and married in london in a, and we were part of church planting in a really cult, multicultural bit of west london uh, and then yeah we were always on a uh, had a sense that god would move us to the middle east at some point and so i think as we you know kind of got closer to that time we were just exploring it and really going god where do you want us to go talking to people and ended up in being sent to Istanbul with a team together with us of several families to be involved in church planting there. So we all spent a couple of years learning Turkish and kind of getting orientated in the city. And then, yeah, and then started a church, and then another church in Istanbul, which, you know, now most of us that were involved in that have gone back to our countries, but the church is there, it's led by Turkish guys. Amazing. And so, and then we came back to the UK a few years ago and yeah, now I'm just involved in kind of helping, coaching, teaching uh, people really in the cross-cultural space within New Frontiers. Uh, and I think it's it's really, really important because I think if we want to reach new places with the gospel, we have to talk about what we're talking about today, which is culture. Because otherwise, you know, you end up going, well, I've, you know, I've done this in England. I can go do this somewhere else. And you don't realize, man, it's completely different. People are asking different yeah. questions. The context is different. Your, your whole approach needs to be different in a different place, really. So I care about it a lot. Amazing. Were there any specific things when you um, were in Turkey that you thought, this is this is completely different? This just in terms of how I understand, specifically scripturally, I suppose. Is there anything that first thing leaped out of you, you know, when you arrived? This is very different. Oh, loads of things. I mean, it's such a different context and I think that the the challenge is you see something different and you go wow that's wrong because I was taught it this way and this is <laughs> you know and I think you've got to slow your reflexes down and rather than go wow that's wrong to kind of go wow that's different you yeah. know so I think one of the things was that when we first land, landed and we visited a few Turkish churches we realized a lot of the 
a lot of the music, like the worship songs, were quite in a minor key and quite sad. Uh, and, you know, we, we'd come from like, in England, it's all like, or it was at least, you know, kind of victory and triumph yeah. and Jesus is smashing the world. And I think it was really interesting to go into a place where partly that reflects Turkish music, which is often in a minor key rather than a major key, but partly that reflects the experience of being a minority Christian community, which is actually, it's about pressure and endurance and patient hope and persecution on every side. And so the songs reflect that really. That's that's what's in people's hearts when they want to worship God. So our initial response was, man, we need to try and write some happy songs. <laughs> but then you realize actually, no, but this reflects how Turkish people want to worship. Uh, and then you start to find the beauty of mm. it and you realize, man, I wish we had a few more lament songs in English culture, obviously lament's a big thing in the Bible, isn't it? And so I think that's an example of a, a first impression where you go, wow, we should change this. And then with time you go, actually, this should change me. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I, I've, actually, it's really interesting you say that because there's some of the groups that we work with in, in East Africa, that's a very similar uh, sort of vibe. A lot of the, the songs are more lamenty and there's a heartache there that I think we don't get often you don't go on a sunday morning and, and often hear laments but you open the psalms and it's full of laments and i think that's really beautiful actually i think ren collective did a had a similar thing a few years ago i don't know if you heard the story that they had with their lament song where it was a family who the child was diagnosed with terminal cancer and they contacted rend and said this child basically their make a wish thing is they want to worship with you would that be okay and they were like well i'm sure there's better things that <laughs> that this child could do with that that time but we'd be honored and so they had the day with them spent the time god-fearing family and they were jumping around the stage of the night and they looked out and they saw the just the parents were crying and they said we don't lament in our culture very well we don't say you know we don't do it in the way that we just sort of go oh everything will be fine and try and push it over and I think that's something really beautiful is the way that lament is done scripturally. But, oh, that's amazing. That's a great, great one to have in terms of how it changes you. And did, did you find, has you found that when you back in the UK, that has changed you in the way that you, you do? Oh, massively, massively. And also I think it equips you to think about, you know, Christians as a minority, mm. which is actually really important for the UK church to think about, you know, the fact that, you know, really our kids might be the only Christian kid in their class that, yeah. you know, the pressures that are around them, all of that. And actually think about how, if we only learn from kind of places where there's majority Christian culture, you know, if you only read American books, for example, mm. then it's only going to give you how to be a Christian in a context like this. Whereas actually learning from places where Christians are in a minority or uh, have pressure around them can help us to get the skills to learn pressure. So again, it reflects really what we want to talk about today, which is, I think the English church needs to listen to the majority world church more mm. on some of these things because they've got resources that we really need. And I think that's an example. Yeah. Yeah. Was there, is there any, because that's a really fascinating one. Have you got any other ones that you just want to share in terms as well and some other changes? Because those that was great. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I quite like, so the story of Joseph, right? Mm. We know the story of Joseph in the Bible. It takes up several chapters. What I found really interesting is, you know, if you read it with an American, it's like the American dream, rags to riches, the prison, you know, happy ending, mm. Hollywood ending, lovely story. That's why you can make a musical out of it for the West End. I think if you read it with a Turkish person, the bit that they really like 
is actually when he's in prison, when he's been stabbed in the back by his brothers, when he's been betrayed, kind of the pain and the loneliness and the abandonment. Turks go, we resonate with that. We get that. We like that the Bible's honest about. And actually, the bit where he forgives his brothers, a lot of Turks, I know, they hate that bit. Really? They're like, yeah, why is he so weak? Um, he, <laughs> he can't even hold a grudge properly. You know, like, what a weak guy to kind of give in and forgive his brothers at the end. They, they think it's a, it's a sad ending to the story. Interesting. Isn't, isn't that interesting? That's, yeah, that really is. But, you know, the Joseph story is really interesting. If I read it with uh, a friend from Africa, he'll say, what I learned from this is wherever a man goes in the world, he never forgets his family. If I read it with, with a friend from India, they'll say, oh, look, it's really a story about fatalism. You know, Joseph has no choice. He's blown around by mm. the, the winds of destiny and ends up wherever God, you know, God's big and we are small. If I read it with an Egyptian friend, they say, look, Egypt's always been the center of the world and everyone wants to come here. <laughs> if I read it with an Arab, some of my Arab friends will say, the problem in the Joseph story is actually that Jacob preferred his younger wife to his older wife, and that created all the problems. Fascinating, hey? If you read it with an English person, what do they notice? The sex. And it's only a few verses, but our culture here seems to notice the sex and think about it. Oh, you, you'll you'll hear a lot of, of sermons on Potiphar's wife and that, that short 100%. bit. 100%. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. That's really interesting what you say about the, the preferring the younger wife as well, because obviously within... Islamic culture you have that sort of vibe of you know your first wife and you know you only take a second wife if you can honor that first wife and really Jacob doesn't do that you know obviously his first wife gives him many kids but I wouldn't you don't see that honoring in the same way oh I think he never forgives Leah for like tricking him on his wedding night and then yeah. shaming him in front of the whole community he treats her sons with you know with kind of disrespect the whole time and he's got the the, the two sons of his favorite wife Rachel Mm. Uh, who he loves Joseph and then Benjamin they're the ones that he's constantly trying to leapfrog over all the others and promote and that's that's and you know w when an Arab reads the story that's they'd say that's where the problem is really he yeah. shouldn't be trying to promote Joseph over the the older brothers who have they're older than him and they've got more right than him so why mm. is he trying to honor Joseph and that's where the problem is which is so interesting when you read scripturally because you look at sort of a theme within scripture of the younger the smaller being honored in terms of Jacob and Esau you see you know the 12 brothers and you see Joseph you see Judah and Israel you know the larger is the one that is taken away into captivity first and um, under the Assyrians and there's an honor bestowed almost onto the smaller Bethlehem a small town that that no one thinks of David just the theme continues which is very countercultural to a to an Arab world yeah, and, and actually to a lot of cultures, you know, in, in England, we might not talk about age yeah. as much, but we certainly talk about kind of power and size. Mm. So even, you know, Bethlehem, this tiny little village being kind of promoted over Jerusalem, you know, yeah. so I think, I think, it, yeah, you're right. There's, there's kind of challenges to all cultures in those stories, which is what I was trying to do in my little book about Bethlehem that came out this year was basically trying to talk about exactly what you're saying that all the way through the bible there's this kind of choosing of this marginal outlying unusual not very cool place you know and that's where jesus is i think it's a really big theme in the bible and in terms of the you saying about you know you if you read it with you know an egyptian an arab a, you know an african obviously all that's you know saying an african is it's a whole continent so there'll be different yeah. cultures within that but you get that different thing how important then is to read scripture with other people to get diversity to read other opinion and how would you say 
what would you be your suggestion for how you do that in a local church yeah it's a great question and i think it's it might be one of the biggest questions people need to be asking at the moment it's absolutely essential for several reasons it's essential because the bible wasn't written in english culture hmm. so the the context in which the bible was written is it alien to us you know it was written for us but it wasn't written to us mm. and so firstly we have to do lots of work trying to understand you know the bible's culture so it's stuff like you know kenneth bailey's book jesus through middle east and eyes you know those kind of things which says actually it's written in the middle east so let's try and think about that a little bit otherwise a lot of the parables don't make sense some of the stories mm. don't make sense so i think there's that but then also i think if we only ever read the Bible in our own cultural context, you know, with people that are like us, we only read books. You know, if all the books on your bookshelf were written by people that look like you, yeah. then the problem is that's only ever going to reinforce the kind of perspectives you already have about the Bible. And, and if you want to broaden that and get some other perspectives, then I think it's about how can you... You know, how can you read books written by other people? How can you follow, you know, podcasts or streams from from mm. people from other places? But also, how can you sit down with friends in your town, who, in your church, who are different to you, have got a different story than you, and read the Bible and essentially say, what do you see here? How do you mm. read this story? And how do I read this story? And enrich each other. And I think that's the, the beauty of discussion as opposed to uh, obviously there's a place for teaching and you know I, I love unpacking the bible and teaching it in a you know um exegetical way and I, you know we it's important that we do that but the beauty of having time where we can sit down and discuss openly and, and say yeah, as you say you know what does this say about god what does this say about his relationship with his people and and then taking bits from others i think it's a a beautiful thing and it's what would have happened in the early church you know the the letters would have been read from from paul or, or or peter and 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 then you know discussion would have happened they wouldn't have just gone oh that was a nice one vicar and just walked off it would have been it would have been life together and i think that's that's really really good is there any um books or podcasts that you would suggest sort of for someone who's thinking i like i really like what we're talking about but i don't know any to go to is there any books that you would suggest or podcasts you mentioned one obviously the kenneth bailey book I mean, there's loads, isn't there? I think in terms of sometimes I think the best thing to do is find like a book with a really good bibliography at the end that that quotes lots of other books and then mm. just go, oh, I want to explore that or I want to explore that. So, But I think Harvey Quiani's book, Multicultural Kingdom, is, is, is basically, so he's Malawian. Mm. Uh, thinker based in Liverpool but it's a very it's a very simple book but it's it's making exactly this point that actually we need to listen to one another and he quotes lots of African people from different parts of Africa so you know if you're interested in sort of African perspectives that's a really good way in I think there's a book by Randy Richards and O'Brien called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes which is it's a little bit American but it's the point that they're making is very much you know, as Westerners, these are some of the things that we miss. You know, when the Bible talks about shame, we really miss it because we don't really think about shame much. When the Bible talks about family, we miss it because the way our family works is completely different. When mm. You know, and so it's just got a few things like that that really are good tools for thinking differently about the Bible. So that's a couple of books I'd recommend. Mm. And obviously, 
I know that Andy won't say it, but if you also want another good read, you can also read Global Humility, which is which is his book. What was what is maybe that would be cool to just chat about in terms of the books you're, you've written. Obviously, you said about the one on Bethlehem that you've just done. Where did where do you go when you start writing a book? Is there something that God puts on your heart and then you just start writing and see where that goes? Or um, is there have you does it come from like a situation you're in? Yeah, I don't know. I've only written two, so I'll tell you when I've written a few more. But I think Global Humility, what I was trying to do was kind of capture our experience cross-culturally while it was mm. still fresh, yeah. but also lots of lots of stuff on missions and culture and contextualization. And I was trying to translate it for churches like ours. So mm. like take lots of stuff and almost be a bit of a funnel and just kind of funnel it down and go, let's try and put lots of signposts to lots of big ideas in one little book so again like the bibliography in there is really helpful because it's got you know books by japanese people books by middle eastern Mm. people books by south american people so you can kind of follow that and and explore as you wish the bethlehem book was a bit more i found that i was preaching and teaching lots of stories from the old testament that all seemed to happen in bethlehem so like the ruth story the david Mm. story the birth of jesus and and I started to realize that there was lots in common between those stories. There's lots of kind of common themes. So then it just led to a bit of a journey of exploring Bethlehem in the Bible as a place and the fact that place in the Bible is really important. And it, again, that might be another difference, really. You know, for Easterners, geography is really important. The place that things happen is really mm. significant. So the sort of the significance of place in a way that as westerners we wouldn't always we wouldn't always read the bible and think oh that happened in you know in this place and and make the connections but then i started traveling to bethlehem and talking to people that live there because it's a real place as well and kind of going how do you read this and how do what's your perspective on this and so getting perspectives from a lot of palestinian christians who've kept the faith in bethlehem for 2000 years so hopefully what the books doing is it's following the story of Bethlehem all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and showing us lots of themes that come together you know so like Bethlehem means house of bread and then Mm. Jesus is born there as the bread of life and he's placed in a manger which is you know for eating it's like bon appetit world (laughs) you know and Bethlehem's a place of sheep and shepherds all the way through the Bible and then Jesus is born there and he's the good shepherd, Mm. but he's also the lamb of God who's going to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. And so there's just loads of themes through the story of Bethlehem that all come together around who Jesus is, which makes it quite a beautiful story. Mm. Oh, incredible. I've got to say, I have not read it yet, but I shall definitely put it on my list of books to read. And I think definitely if you're listening to this, you should as well. You said in terms of a one difference being location that if you read in sort of specifically a Middle Eastern lens, you're going to be looking sort of at location. Do you think that there are some um, key things that we do in the West when we read in the Bible, something that maybe people wouldn't be aware of as a cultural, not so much a bias, but a lens that they're reading it through when they're reading the Bible, they go, they might look for certain things and in doing so might overlook other bits. Yeah, I think there are. I think, there's there's something in certainly british culture around really trying to answer kind of mechanical questions or scientific like the sort of how questions of things Mm. and sometimes the bible just isn't answering that it just doesn't think that way so 
a lot of what the Bible, we read it and we think, oh, this is answering kind of how how this happened or filling in the colour for something. You know, actually the Bible might be using a lot of metaphor and it's not actually talking in a kind of engineering pragmatic sense. I think So I think we can often miss things there when the Bible is talking in metaphor or poetry and we want to treat it a bit more literally or a bit more concretely. So I think, does that make sense? Yeah, Sorry, yeah. it's a bit of an abstract idea, but... I, you know, a classic example might be how you read Genesis 1 and 2, mm. you know. Yeah, and and um, I think within that, the how we read genre and what we think that means because of the different genres. So, for instance, if we say that it's poetic or we think that there's elements which aren't meant to be, as you use the phrase, mechanic, or mechan- the mechanics of it, I quite like that. We say, oh, that means in the West, I think often we lump, jump to the thing of it's poetic, that means it is fictional or in some way less true less true yes which is not which is so out of the style of writing that were at that time you know if you read about gospels they're not autobiographies in the way that we would read them today but that doesn't make them any less sort of biographical of the the style that they were at the time it's just a different genre yeah it's really important and i think so a great example would be a apocalyptic literature yeah so things like revelation but also daniel and bits of ezekiel so often western readers might be looking for literal reading so for Mm. example literal readings of some of the numbers in where so often they're actually they're they're symbolic numbers aren't they rather than Mm. literal you know so i I, you know you get these whole theologies built on a millennium and it's a thousand years thing it only turns up in two verses in revelation and yet you've built whole systems on it and it's only a symbolic number anyway so so i think so often we get that i think and and also i think apocalyptic literature is written again by a persecuted minority who are trying to communicate their truths in kind of code without the authorities mm. finding out and i think if we if we miss the context of persecution with those kind of books then we also miss a lot of what it's trying to say but i think another thing that that we often do as western readers is is deeply individualized things Mm. um and i know you know i know this comes up a lot and preachers will say it a lot but it's so difficult for westerners to get out of that even the way our language is built you know so the english translations of bibles will use you know words like you need to be filled with the holy spirit Mm. for example and we just don't have a word for like plural you communal (laughs) communal feeling of the holy spirit we just don't have that and so even our language and our english translations of the bible just can't help us on things like that because it's such an intensely Mm. individualistic culture in england that you can really miss so much of and it can make things really different you know so the fruit of the fruit of the spirit is a great example you know the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness self-control yeah Mm. and it's the way it comes out in greek and in some other languages that can handle it is actually it's talking it's not those aren't nine different fruits of the spirit it's the fruit that Mm. is produced by the holy spirit and it's talking about a community so it's contrasted to in galatians 5 and galatians 6 it's contrasted to a community that is producing really negative fruit Mm. and so it's going actually you could see the fruit of the spirit in a community that looks like this or you could see the fruit of the spirit, uh, the fruit, you know, the kind of the, the fruit of the world and the flesh in yeah. the community that looks like this. And so it's contrasting two different communities. So it's not lots of different kinds of fruit and it's not 
what individual fruit are you bearing in your life? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not I could do with it. Although, obviously, we often say I could do with a bit more patience generally or, or I need a bit more of that. It's as we become more Christ-like and as as, as a church, you, you grow in sanctification and, and development or not just a church community, you see those things so much more within that. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that's really beautiful about reading as going back to what we said earlier about reading through the lenses and the the cultural views of different people groups because if you look within a less individualistic more community-based things you know it will be very much as as one grows the community grows and that's part of it you're not looking for yourself to become top dog that's a very western mindset the view of the community growing and developing together or you know when when you sort of scale it sort of down we work with a lot of the guys in when we with the guys in south sudan in villages when the village prospers everyone prospers there's not yeah. one person who goes oh i'm going to become the prosperous one because that doesn't help the village yeah absolutely and also you can't be more patient you can't grow in patience to use your example by yourself mm. like you can only grow in patience in community because you need other people that are going to test your patience and push your buttons to see to see if you're going to... And yeah. so, it's all well and good being patient and loving when you're on your own. Yeah, that's easy. So, which actually, as we come out of COVID and regather, I think everyone's finding hard. So yeah, I, I think it's really important. And I think, like you say, communalistic cultures, and I do think the Bible was written in a communalistic culture. And so actually on that issue... I, I, I do believe that someone from a communalistic culture, a group orientated culture, rather than an individualistic one, can actually read some bits of the Bible just a bit more naturally. So, for example, you know, the, the Ruth and Boaz story, I think for English people, they might not see any cost to Boaz. Mm. You know, oh, he gets to marry a nice young girl and like it's, it's, it's not hard for him to do that. Whereas for people, you know, that might be from a, a village culture um, in the Middle East, that actually they'll see so many difficulties for Boaz because mm. he's marrying someone who's an outsider from outside the village. He's marrying someone that, that other, someone else has refused to marry. Uh, and so, and he's marrying someone who is, you know, is, is a Moabite. So it's essentially like an enemy Mm. community and if you marry outside the community the land that goes with that marriage means your land might go to foreigners so it's going to fragment the village there's so there's huge amounts of pressure actually and for boaz to make that decision is very costly for him Mm. but if you don't think in terms of honor and shame and you don't think in terms of kind of community dynamics then you might miss that and obviously boaz as a redeemer for ruth is a picture of jesus christ and that it Mm. was costly for jesus to uh, redeem us and so it can really help us actually with our with our gospel to listen to people from different cultures definitely and i think the that honor shame element i think is really important in terms of when looking at because we don't i think well i think naturally the uk isn't an honor and shame culture although i think it's moving that direction due to things like social media and things like that i think they push on a shame in a in a much different way but obviously in a slightly twisted way but when you look at stories of redemption i think often we do forget what that means in a cultural um sense when you're in a community because we think of ourselves and that's the individualistic nature because we know we're the one who was redeemed by christ we go oh we're very natural to go oh yeah we're the ones who are getting redeemed but you know you look at hosea you know to say oh yeah 
I'm Gomer in that situation, that's deeply shameful. And for a Hosea like character person to redeem and constantly pursue would be shameful as well. And there's, yeah, as you say, you miss out on the beauty of that when you don't, when you try and read it solely through your experiences. Yeah. And again, quite a lot of nuance because I think there's at least 10 Old Testament Hebrew words for shame. Hmm. And we get them translated differently in our English Old Testament. But when we read it, they don't mean anything different. You know, so reproach, disgrace, dishonor. Hmm. We, we don't feel the weight of those words and we don't feel the, the nuance in it in a way that someone who their whole life functioning in, in, a, in a culture where shame is a real power and a real weapon can feel the kind of the impact of all those different kind of words, you know. So we lose, you know, it's like the classic thing of there's four Greek words in the New Testament for love, isn't yeah. there? Which again is a really English way of putting it. Yeah. Because the Greek way of putting it would be there are four different kinds of love. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know. Yeah, we're, we're looking at it from one side looking back as opposed yeah. to that way. Yeah, it's a, in terms of that, was that something that you saw I would imagine very practically when you guys were living in Turkey, the that sort of difference of, of culture in terms of that honor shame, was that very visible in, in sort of daily life in, in Turkey? Yeah, massively, massively. It's all about when you walk into a room, you look around and you try and work out who's top, who's got the most honor and who's the kind of low down and where do I fit in the right. hierarchy? So you kind of do that. It's a little bit, maybe harshly like when pastors walk into a room and they look around and they go who's got the biggest church here who's got the yeah. smallest which is a terrible <laughs> terrible perversion of the idea but yeah so that it's it's an automatic dynamic in a culture like a turkish mm. culture that's the first question you are and and then the questions that you ask about should i do something or not are actually about how will this affect my reputation so right and wrong is not an abstract category and it's not an internal conscience issue it's what does this group of people think is right mm. or wrong so there's a you know there's a kind of classic joke about a turkish guy who is driving into an underground car park and he sees a sign that says you know no cars over two meters and his car is over two meters but he looks right and left and no one's watching so he drives in and smashes <laughs> his car you know and it's like the issue is is anybody watching yeah and as as English people, you can just look at that and go, well, that's terrible. That's wrong to view right and wrong and moral choice in that way rather than, you know, based on your sort of intrinsic conscience. But when Turkish people look at English people, they say, well, your individualistic conscience based morality hasn't done you very well as a culture, has it? Yeah. Because everybody just decides inside themselves what they think feels right or feels wrong for them. Mm. And so it's not a very resilient system. It's not a very conservative system. And you end up with everyone just doing whatever is right in their own eyes, mm. as the book of Judges says. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like we go, I think sometimes we think that we, we work to like an object morality, but we don't in terms of as a, as a people, we definitely do look to that individual, you know, what, what's going to be work in this situation and that situation, what's my best to do in there and there. And in some ways that's incredibly fickle and actually in, the uniting thing is that God is the only objective morality, really, isn't it? In terms of to say, actually, 
it's not whether I do this or not because they think I should or I've decided why not. It's actually what's what does God say in his word? It was a conversation I had with, with my wife actually the other day in terms of naturally as a person, I'm quite, I'd say I'm quite left-leaning in terms of I'm quite liberal in, in many ways. But there are a lot of things, but she was like, but you're so conservative and traditional in your theology. And I was like, yeah, but that's because with things that I know God has said, I don't back off on and I, actually I am quite traditional on. For other things, I'm, I'm actually quite chill and, you know, I can let people crack on. Um, but there's a, I, I try and walk that balance between the two. Yeah. And I think the, the challenge for the, the English church genuinely is if we, if, if we only talk about kind of internal conscience and guilt and we only offer people a gospel for that, so, you know, the gospel is that your guilt is forgiven, which is true, but the gospel's mm. bigger than that. Yeah. Then the problem is I could feel forgiven on my own before God, but still walk into a church meeting and feel really ashamed because I haven't understood how the gospel affects my relationships within community and my kind of cleanses me from having to feel shame. You know, Jesus mm. said to Peter get behind me Satan because you have in mind the things of man and not the things of God and I think what what he's trying to say is you need to understand that God's that you know the what the gospel does in you Peter is bigger than just your own your own individual conscience being cleansed mm. and also if you were sharing the gospel with a Muslim and you said to them, you know, I know the answer to how your sins can be forgiven. They'd go, no big deal. That's not yeah, the question yeah. I'm asking. God is merciful. He forgives my sins. That's yeah, yeah. not That's not a problem. You know, it's a lie that there's no forgiveness in Islam. Forgiveness is easy in Islam. My problem is, how do I, how do I, how do I deal with my shame and my standing in the world? Yeah. And the weight that that puts on me. It's a different question. It's a conversation I had with a, a Muslim friend of mine and, and um, we were talking about justice and he was saying there is no justice in your Christian understanding because God is merciful and God will, you saying that God forgives you and that's you sort of clean and that's you done. But if you've, if you've sinned against that person and that family, then they still need their pound of flesh. How come they yeah. don't? Um, get that from you you're saying it's just between you and God that's a whole different ballgame and actually I think that we often forget that that it's more than just oh yeah my little my relationship with God there is a communal aspect of of that and when you're looking to evangelize into those situations there is an awareness and I think that's why it's I love that earlier when you said about being in Turkey you spent that time um, you didn't just say oh we're going to start a church and we know what we're doing. You know, you spent time getting into culture, learning Turkish, learning culture before looking to sort of plant your feet, as it were, and your flag. It's hugely important. Otherwise you turn up and you go, hello, I've got all the answers. And everyone goes, we didn't even ask you a question yet. You know, yeah. like, so I think the the kind of the whole thing of context analysis or taking time mm. to live amongst, you know, Jesus spent 30 years living amongst people, just working, mm. listening, connecting. And then he spoke for three years. And you could argue that his 30 years listening made his three years talking really effective. Or if in the Gospel of John, all the places where Jesus is sharing the gospel with people, it's in dialogue. Yeah. You know, he has a dialogue with Nicodemus, chapter three, a dialogue with the Samaritan woman, chapter four, all the way through John. And they're all slightly different because he's, you know, sharing the gospel is a dialogue. It's an interaction with a culture, with people. 
and people ask different questions, Jesus is going to give them slightly different answers. But Christians like monologuing, you know? Mm. Amazing. Sort of, I suppose, finally sort of sum up in, in terms of the, this conversation. And thank you so much for, for, being, for coming in and having it. It's been really awesome. And hopefully it's been helpful for all of you listening in. I'm sure um, a lot of what Andy has said has, has cut through and, and, and spoken to you. Any tips that you would have to encourage people as they share their faith with people from different cultures, you know, maybe their, their neighbours, their work colleagues, and also how to do that, how to look to promote diversity without it being tokenistic yeah so i think it's all about relationship and love and what i would call humility so i think you've got to you've got to spend lots of time listening to people's stories and understanding where they come from before you talk so you've got two ears and one mouth so at Mm. least listen for two-thirds of the time and talk for one you know so i think and a lot of that happens over food food is a great leveler Mm. in an honor shame culture food puts everyone around the table together so it kind of levels the playing field which is hugely important so i think lots of eating lots of sitting and talking and lots of listening ask people particularly if they're from another culture ask them about their country ask them about their family ask them about where they came from and i think with time you will find opportunities where the gospel will resonate you'll think of a story from the life of jesus and you'll think, cool, that really answers that question. And then you'll have the opportunity respectfully to to share a story. And the way to do that cross-culturally, again, is not to preach mm. or not to go, I've got the answer to your problem, but to kind of almost put the Bible in between you and go, let's read the story together. How does it speak to you? How does it speak to me? And, and you know, there's a, there's a famous little story, right? And maybe this will help to finish with. There's a monkey. One day he falls out of his tree into the river and um, he's he struggles because he's like drowning and swallowing water and he thinks this is horrible. So he gets out of the river, mm. but then he sees a fish in the river and he's like, oh, that poor fish is also struggling. <laughs> Let me get him out the river and put him in my tree. And then he sees another fish and then another one. And so he spends a whole afternoon getting fish out the river and putting them in the tree. And sometimes I think that's how we function cross-culturally mm. is we think oh, wow, I've got the answer and that person over there is really struggling. Whereas actually, maybe it's just cultural difference mm. and you need, to, you need to ask the fish if they want to be saved, you know? Yeah. Amazing. That's great. That's awesome. A great place to end, I think, definitely. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really awesome to chat through and uh, just been really blessed to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Take care.